I thought I'm gonna hit it off with Tom Waits and probably don't have much to say to Iggy Pop because he's so cool. And it was the, the opposite, you know, like mm -hmm. it, uh, I had striking conversations with Iggy Pop and he was so sweet and polite and uh, interested and interesting. And Tom Waits was the one who didn't say so much, who I more admired than from the distance when I was around him. So it was very interesting for me. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am just delighted to welcome Cassis Birgit Stout to the My Fourth Act podcast. Cassis is a German musician, composer, teacher, and performer. Her life includes long tenures in New York and currently Berlin. Cassis won a Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival for her work as a producer with filmmaker Jim Jarmusch. She was the muse behind the Oscar-nominated film Fairy Tales. Her band Be Blush performed regularly in the downtown Manhattan club scene. And Cassis has composed film scores for numerous award-winning films. She loves teaching voice, which she does at, among other places, the world-famous Actors Studio. I am just scratching the surface with everything I mentioned here. Welcome, Cassis. Welcome. I'm so happy that you're here. You have created an extraordinary life and you continue to create that life every day. Before we go into that, I always like to start with when you were a young girl, you are from Germany. What were your dreams for yourself? Who did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? I grew up in a really small town and I, don't, I didn't have so many role models. My dreams came from within me. Mm -hmm. And I made with toilet paper rolls, I made uh, little cinema experiences, and I made a band uh, with my fellow uh, friend in school. We both played guitar. And it evolved that uh, as a teenager, I created street fairs where I invited the people that I most adored in my hometown to show their art and to play music. We did that a couple of times. I remember I was 17 going to town hall and asking for permission to get locked off a whole uh, big area <laughs> of town where we had a stage and we would people would sell things that we then could how do you say the uh, the profit you could give to charity and in the end right before I left town when I when I was 17 my dream was to uh, come up with a piece of work that includes sound and images and theater and music and I put together a group of people 
And we gathered and talked, nothing did really come out. We had a good time. And in the end, because there was a date, I took it upon and made uh, most of that piece, which became my first kind of Gesamtkunstwerk, where the audience had to enter the room and there was a speaking choir around them. And everything was based on glass and the meanings of glass. I did something that I'm pursuing now again. You know, it's interesting. How large was the town that you live in? I'm imagining you doing this in a small village. So I want to get a sense of the size of where you lived. Uh, the village was about a thousand people. Yeah. Well, it, it, I'm just so startled because you, the story you just told us, you're in a small town. You were the creative wild child who created this big multidisciplinary event in a place that wasn't used to that. You've had such a rich life, so I'm going to just, just cherry pick a little bit because you and I met in New York. You ended up in New York, and part of your story that I think is so interesting for anybody who listens is you create the sort of life that you've created. There are multiple strands And you engage in different strands, and the strands together create a rich tapestry of a life. If I think of your life in New York, and I want to drill down a little bit, and I'm, I'm going to use you as a role model for people. Yours is a glamorous version of this. You, you ended up working with a beloved independent filmmaker, Jim Jarmusch, as a producer. You became a performer and musician. You had a band. You started composing film music. And you became a sought-after location scout for movies. And you did all of that in Manhattan, sometimes concurrently or sometimes sequentially. So let's drill into that. Because Jim Jarmusch is, by many people, for many people, a revered filmmaker. I, I'm a huge fan of his movies. How does one come go from Germany to becoming a producer <laughs> in New York for a famous filmmaker, Jim Jarmusch? How did that happen? <laughs> Uh, good question. I studied music in Hamburg, and at some point I discovered my love of movies. And I had a boyfriend who happened to be a projectionist at a press screening for a movie that Jim Jarmusch showed, which was Mystery Train. Mm -hmm. And I happened to be there and I happened to stand at the bar in the end after the screening where Jim Jarmusch was asking the bartender how he could find that place 439. And so I knew Jim Jarmusch is going to 439. And then I, I grabbed my boyfriend and another friend and we drove there and there was this bar and big wide uh, glass windows and we were all thinking, what are we going to do now? Inside we could see uh, Jim Jarmusch being really cool standing there. And then we had the idea, I go inside like in a Western movie, open the doors like in a Western, and I go straight to him and I say, I want to work for you. And that's what I did. And that's what happened. He gave me his phone number. We talked for uh, 15 minutes. I was bright red in my face, which then made the, the name of my band blush because I had a <laughs> habit of blushing. And... We talked about music. I had just been to New York and I was able to talk about uh, a club that I loved, Knitting Factory. Mm -hmm. And then he said, that's one of my favorite clubs. And we talked about a musician that I admired that I later made a docu documentary about, Mark Rebo. And he said, that's a really good friend of mine. And so in the end, he gave me his phone number and I followed up. I sent faxes back then to New uh -huh. York. 
to the one person that worked for him. That work, that woman, Dimitra McBride, happened to have the same birthday as I had. And a few months later, I was working for him. I came to New York. There's so many things I adore about the story. You, you, you said twice, I happened to be, and I happened to be. And there's this word in, in English I should call happenstance. So there's this happenstance, but you chose to follow up. You chose to meet him and to be pretty fearless about it. And the other thing that really struck me is, I think magic happens in life when there is some kind of synchronicity with people and you and Jim clearly had that, right? So let's explore New York a little bit because for every experience, and, and I guess um, we're talking about life choices, we can tell the sexy version of it where we go, this is what's really exciting about, in the end, producing movies for Jim Jarmusch. But that's often this part that's challenging or frustrating or not easy. We're going to get to the other stuff, but let's stick with Jim Jarmusch. If you had to tell us a story or a moment where you go, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe I get to do this work. One of the most amazing things that happened was that I got the chance to produce a music video because the other people who normally produced for Jim Jarmusch didn't have time. I had already produced a couple of films in Germany and I had to step up and was able to produce a segment of Coffee and Cigarettes with Tom Waits and Iggy Pop. Standing there then in Tom Waits's farmland in front of his chicken farm, um, talking to Iggy Pop and seeing him walk his cat on a leash together with his girlfriend through the garden was amazing. You know, I couldn't believe that I from a small town was there and was the person who then at the end of the day paid everyone and I uh, had made the budget. I had organized everything together with Dimitra McBride. I did not do that alone. I was the one who was sent out there, who uh, arrived with Jim Jarmusch in the morning on set and left again together to go back to the motel. And it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I was debating whether to say this or not, because, but because we all have different tastes. So if, for any listener who doesn't know Iggy Pop and Tom Waits, these are legends. <laughs> these are not lightweights. These are very, very cool, iconic musicians with very strong identities, wouldn't you say? Totally. You know, I had my own preconceived notions. I was a big fan of both. And I thought I'm going to hit it off with Tom, Tom Waits and probably don't have much to say to Iggy Pop because he's so cool. And it was the, the opposite, you know, like mm -hmm. it, I had striking conversations with Iggy Pop and he was so sweet and polite and interested and interesting. And Tom Waits was the one who didn't say so much, who I more admired than from the distance when I was around him. So it was very interesting for me. Since I mentioned the Cannes Film Festival in the intro for this particular episode, which became part of a larger movie by Jim Jarmusch, you were awarded with other people a Palme d'Or as the producer at this incredible film festival. What was it like to receive that recognition that eludes many people that it came to you. Well, maybe that is a little, that's a, definitely a highlight of my life. And that's also a bit of a sad moment because none of us was there in Cannes when mm -hmm. that happened and when that was awarded. Jim Jarmusch did not like festivals at the time because he was not going. Nobody else of the film went to the festival. Mm -hmm. And 
I had plans to go there, but then in the end, I uh, I did not dare to go. Yeah. And today I'm sad I did not go when this happened. I did go then later when Dead Man was in Cannes. And that was an amazing experience, being there as part of the crew that had made this film happen, and I had worked on it for many years. So I was a little sad that I wasn't at that moment in Cannes. When in New York, you also uh, you had your own band, Be Blush. You worked with some amazing musicians. You performed a lot. And, and what comes to my mind, and I, I'm completely unmusical, so it's also filtered by, by who I am, but the, the sense that it takes... I think it takes courage to say, I'm going to perform. I think it takes courage to form a band. It takes courage to also say, I'm going to compose music, which is what you're doing at the time. Can you walk us into sort of the, the courage it took and the determination to do it? Maybe a sense of a highlight from that time, but also if there was anything challenging or frustrating, what comes to mind? Great question. I'm not the natural performer. I was <laughs> not at the time. I was blushing a lot, as I told you. <laughs> I was the type of person who would appear cool and maybe a little bit of arrogant. If you talk to me on a personal note, I would turn red. <laughs> and at some point I realized I have to address this. And I realized that showing feelings is a strength. <laughs> And I happened to stumble into a band because my office co-worker at Jim Jarmusch's office saw a piano standing in my apartment and said, we should have a band. <laughs> and um, she didn't sing and she didn't play an instrument. She was a dancer. I just went with it. It's, at this point, I knew saying yes is a really good thing. Mm -hmm. We named the band Turning Red. And I was the one who wrote one song after the other. It just came out. Mm -hmm. And then there was a moment where I had an opportunity through Richard Bose, an amazing person I met through Jim Jarmusch, who, who passed away, who was a, a veteran. And he gave me the opportunity to perform in a bar in the East Village at Mona's. And I stood behind the pool table with my accordion. I would have never thought this would ever happen. Would play my own songs that I had written that were also sad songs because a lot of emotions came up. Yeah, That was clearly a highlight. And there was also, I happened to do a, a ton of performances also. I had to look up Love where I did one of them, which was the bottom line, which was of one of my highlights. Yeah, that's uh, a fancy club. <laughs> yeah, I performed there in a sold out room and that was one of the highlights. And one of the beginnings were performing twice a week at the Continental mm -hmm. and at Mona's, different places. There were also moments where I forgot my lines. And I stood in front of the audience with a moment of silence and then started up the song again. That was, in hindsight, moments of connection yeah. and not moments of embarrassment. It was so great to learn that. Well, I have to respond to the, the forgetting your lines. I spent part of my 1980s performing with a choreographer named Wendy Woodson. And we had this 40-minute duet together tightly choreographed, but at any given performance, I knew at some point Wendy would forget the steps. <laughs> and, and I've learned, if this is a metaphor for life, those are usually the most interesting moments, right? Because we're not just executing what we rehearsed. There's the moment where in the moment we got to do something. And so I want to honor what you said. I'm remembering my performances with Wendy Woodson, but to me, it also relates to your story of meeting Jim Jarmish, which is 
you just happen to be there. And Jim Jarmus happened to be there. And then we can make something happen in that moment or we cannot. All those things are connected in my mind. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the, the My Fourth Act Mastermind groups where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. You mentioned the accordion because you're a German woman who spent a whole bunch of time in New York, is back in Germany, and you started playing the accordion, which is a very traditional German instrument, and sort of reconnecting. What does it mean for you to play that? It's considered a very traditional German instrument music, but you, you very much reclaimed it and made it your own. Can you talk about a little bit with the relationship to that sound and that instrument and that music and where you come from? Yeah, thank you. The accordion means a lot to me. My family was middle class family and both of my parents played the accordion and they were hiding it from me uh, mm -hmm. while I was growing up so that I could play the piano. Mm -hmm. I even got a grand piano that I still have today. And at some point when I realized one of my favorite people, uh, musicians, Tom Waits, has a lot of accordion in his music. The Pokes have accordion. Pans uh, that I adored had accordion. I asked my mother if she could bring the accordion they had been hiding uh, to New York. When I was holding the instrument, that's when the emotions started flooding, not with the piano. Yeah, I yeah. was a bit stifled on the piano, but the accordion was kind of all hell broke loose with that instrument. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a person who uh, really likes this traditional folk music that yeah. that's out there with accordion. I respect it. There's a lot of skill doing that. But what I'm drawn to is using the accordion, which I'm doing today. I'm writing a symphony and there's going to be all these accordions around the audience. And I use the accordion like uh, something where wind blows through it and makes colored air. Mm. So I'm creating ambiances with the accordion yeah. and I'm doing that with other people, I'm using it today in a non-traditional way. Yeah. And I also am in a band and I play it as a front woman singing, play the accordion. To complete your, I hope our listeners are getting a snapshot of just the, the different threads of your life in New York. And one big part was, because you and I met in New York and, and we see each other in Berlin sometimes now, is that you did some location scouting for films, which is one of those very niche thing professions. I find it wildly interesting. And it's part of so the texture of the life you created. If somebody doesn't know about what location scouting in film looks like, can you give us a snapshot, like a, a day in the life of a location scout? Like, what do you do? <laughs> you um, you get a script, you read it in a feature film, you're part of a team, uh, you meet tomorrow in the morning in the office, we split up areas because clearly the film needs uh, specific areas that you have to find as a scout. 
at the beginning, when I worked for television, I had to go out and uh, buzz on people's doors mm -hmm. and say, please let me in. And it helped that I was a woman. I had a, a German accent and people let me into their houses and photograph their spaces. Later, I would uh, make these panoramas submit them to the production office and the director then looks at them and says, yes, I, I think this would be a great space. It's all based on how I photograph the space mm -hmm. and how I, I envision the space. At moments in my life, I was a wedding photographer and I know that the, the feeling that I have towards the people I photograph or the spaces that I photograph is then later captured in the photograph. Yeah. So a director would fall in love with what I had fallen yeah. in love. Um, and I got into that because um, I did not want to be working inside an office as a, a producer anymore. I did not want to be spending most of my time in production offices. I wanted to be outdoors and there was a producer in Jim Jarmusch's life, Karen Cook, who had the idea when Dead Man came around, she said, I think you could be a location scout. And Jim Jarmusch then said, I love your eye. I have seen your black and white photographs. I think you could be a great person going out and finding new locations because he had to find new locations based yeah. on weather and financial circumstances. And so I got the permission to go out there and learn how to be a location scout. I didn't even know really what it was. And I made panoramics with 10, sometimes 20 photographs glued next to each other, was sitting there and photographing landscapes and later had to sit down and find how branches had to be put together so that you could uh, see a park or the, the movie had a lot of landscapes, black and white landscapes. That was my first uh, location scouting job. That's how I got into it. Yeah. And I had later a chance to work on the first Spider-Man, was uh, one of the people who was assigned uh, to check out roofs. I was the specialist in rooftops in Manhattan. Uh -huh. And then when there was a recession and I had uh, already uh, stepped up and scout for commercials, I got on the film Wall Street and was then the specialist for training rooms. And for me, coming from a small town in Germany, become a specialist in all these places was amazing and meet the people yeah. connected with those spaces. Since you just connected your story back to Germany, I was thinking, well, let me, two things. One thing that really struck me, you said this a lot, and I, I want to share this for our listeners, is you've spoken about having a feeling for something and how that feeling is important, the feeling for the accordion, the feeling for spaces, and the ability to, to follow those feelings and trust them in your life, they become commercialized in a way you, you made it, they became part of the work you do, which is really, really awesome. But I was also thinking as a girl from a small town in Germany, which you, you told us a story, how did you change as a person doing all of this cool work in New York in very cool environments and sometimes with really famous people? How did that change Cassis? Thank you. I had to change. When I had arrived in New York in 1993, I had kind of a breakdown and I had hives 
all over my body for several weeks. And it was right at the time when I had produced the coffee and cigarettes with uh, Iggy Pop and Tom Waits, performed the first time in my life. And I had just uh, finished a documentary about uh, filming, directing and producing about Mark Rebo. And I came down with hives and it was a really difficult situation. It was horrible and embarrassed. I was, it felt embarrassing. It, uh, I didn't know if this would ever end. That's when I discovered meditation, inner work, spirituality. Mm-hmm. And that's when I had to embrace it. New York helped me to digging deeper inside of myself to hold my own hand more to and I'm still working on inner climate change, which is what I'm addressing with my current uh, symphony that I'm working on. I think the more I am reconnecting with myself and my inner children and my deepest inner, the more I'm honestly connecting with other people. The less secrets that I have, the more connection there is to others, the more life thrives for me and for others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have become a person who loves laughing into someone's face mm-hmm. and connecting through a laugh with someone else. That was, when I left Germany, something that I could not do. Yeah. So I, you just described so beautifully how... I like the the phrase used, inner climate change. You grew up externally through your work, but you also began to evolve internally in New York. So New York did both of those things for you. Now, as somebody who's lived in New York and left New York, people who love New York often feel like I could never leave. And you left New York and you went to Berlin, which obviously also is a sexy, glamorous city in many people's eyes, even though everyday reality is probably a lot more ordinary. But I want to ask this question again about you, when I related to listeners, because many listeners might go, I have a dream of living somewhere else completely. I would like to leave where I am, even though my life here is really cool. How did you navigate that transition in your life? Can you just walk us through that process or that journey? It was not easy to leave New York. You were one of the people who showed Mm -hmm. me that it's possible. Mm -hmm. You left New York. I had another friend who left New York for New Orleans. I had many friends who went back to Europe. At some point, my father passed away. Mm -hmm. I got the phone call in New York. Mm -hmm. It was very sad that I could not say goodbye. Within a day, I was in Germany and I was at the funeral. I had already made it happen that I had an apartment in Berlin. That happened in 2001, around 9-11. I was actually in Berlin when 9-11 happened, looking to buy an apartment. And when my father passed away in 2009, my husband was the one saying, we should just move to Berlin. He is American. He was ready to leave America. I was not. I was really hanging on with my dear life to Manhattan. Yeah. Uh, my friends were there. I was the expert of locations. I knew many secret places a lot of people would never see in their life. 
I did not want to leave that place that gave me a life that where mm. I discovered my music, I discovered my inner self. I lived in a small railroad apartment that I adored, although I had a penthouse apartment in Berlin that I could, you know, that I for many years did not really fully move into. Mm. So it took a lot of uh, courage uh, on my end, and it took my husband to move to Berlin without me mm. a couple of years before me. And for me to go back and forth for a couple of years and to then take the courage and to do it and to make the move, uh, which by now I would describe, thank God I made it out of there. Mm -hmm. And I would have never believed in a million years that I would ever say that. When I now go back, and the last time I was there in 2019, I arrived, I had one week, I had a glamorous location scouting job in the week, and it was a fantastic week, but I realized there was a lot of smell in the air, it was a very loud city, it, and I then realized how beautiful it is in Berlin and that I want to go back to that beauty and to the quality of life that I have. When we make a big transition like you did, and you, you described it so beautifully, and especially leaving a place that in many people's eyes is very glamorous like New York, there's something we lose and there's something we gain. I think you described it a little bit already, but what, what did you gain by leaving? I gained quality time for myself, for my friends, spend time with my family, spend time with my friends, and to go deeper in my art. It goes all together. I believe that whatever I change in one area, it applies to every area in my yeah. life. I'm working on a project right now that I could have never envisioned that I would tackle. I had a wonderful birthday yesterday with uh, friends and a lot of greetings that I got from all over the world. And I have a rich life. Mm -hmm. And I arrived with a burnout. Yeah, I was burnt out. I could not feel joy. I yeah. had joy when I arrived in Berlin, but I could not feel it. Mm -hmm. Today, I can feel joy. You've mentioned this new project you're working on that clearly is very meaningful to you that you're excited about. So in the spirit of leaving a place and moving to something new, if this is part of your new, would you describe that project to us? Thank you. It is a uh, climate symphony, a climate film symphony that I'm writing. I do want to emphasize that things in my life, a lot happen through circumstances mm -hmm. and then saying yes to circumstances. So this climate symphony is clearly has been in the motion, but because a friend of mine mentioned that there is funds to that I could apply to, I was able to sit down, focus, and birth this idea that I now have been working on for a few months. It's going to have an orchestra on the stage. It uh, involves filmmakers that are showing their way of uh, the climate, of uh, nature. Um, it's going to have accordions around the audience. It's going to have an immersive ambiance and natural surround sound that people can experience. There will be a choir that will sing birds sounds that will speak in uh, animal sounds. There will be a solo and the solo is by a plant. I discovered a device that 
taps into the energy of plants and helps me to translate that energy of a plant into music. In the next few months, I will explore that more. And I cried when I realized that I could do this. That's what I want to do. I want us all to listen to plants. And hear <laughs> you spoke about joy and feeling joy. And I feel your joy as you talk about this climate symphony. And I, I was just struck as you're describing it, because to me, I went, this is Mature Cassis's version of what she did at 17 in her little town, in her dorf where she grew up. And you're doing the same thing on a different scale with a lot of more wisdom and knowledge and insight, which is friggin' awesome, right? Yeah, I'm having tears come to my I know you. our listeners can't see, but I'm watching Cassis <laughs> and you're very emotional right now and your tears are coming forth. What are those tears are about, you know? About this connection of coming back to my dreams that I had starting out and trusting that these are dreams that are they need to be pursued. Yeah. I for for you and for me, for our fourth act listeners, it's it sounds so simple, but having the courage to embrace our dreams and not reject them even when we don't know how they will manifest because they're there for a reason. And something I'm learning in all of these podcasts, your stories to build in the sense that at some point we do something now that's connected via many dots to something, a thought or a feeling or a dream we had when we were younger. And it manifests in a different sort of way. You gave us a glimpse already as we start to sadly wrap up. What are some things you appreciate most about your life in Berlin right now? And what are some things that are emerging for you in your life in Berlin right now? I'm a bit emotional, so ask me that again, please. What do you enjoy most about your life in New York right now? Because you are contrasting it with leaving Manhattan or New York burned out. So what do you enjoy most? And what are some new things that are emerging for you besides the climate symphony? What I enjoy most is that I don't only do one thing that I love. I do several things that I love. One of them is actually teaching. I actually also teach people in New York voice. Mm -hmm. It's a dream for me. The connection is unbelievable. I thank the universe every day that I can do things that I uh, never thought I would do, to be honest. I spent my time writing music, performing music, connecting to people via music, through music, help others to step into their enthusiasm, to trust themselves. They help me to trust myself. We all hold each other's hands. And I'm just amazed I can uh, work on a, a climate symphony that is uh, a topic that addresses something that I have been working on my whole life, um, the inner climate change. And I believe that we all need to do an inner climate change in order to arrive 2030 to reach those climate goals. Yeah. I think we all need to hold each other's hands uh, and say it's okay. We can do this and it's, it's okay to have change and it's, it's okay. It's good. What a beautiful message. And that might be a perfect note to end on. So if I, I, I can't imagine that people listening to you are not curious about the work you do, the wonderful music you create. A lot of the music is publicly available. Where, where would you like to send folks who want to learn more about you and your work and the stuff that you do? 
good place is my website. It's uh, called cassisb.com. Mm -hmm. Cassis is, uh, we actually didn't get to talk about that, but I, uh, it's my artist name. Yeah. It's, uh, I never had a middle name. Once my music started to come, I needed a new name. It became Cassis. So um, the website is called cassisb.com. Shall I spell it? I, I will spell it. C-A-S-S-I-S-B dot com. Uh, it was such a joy for me to have this conversation with you. I urge our listeners to check out your music, which is uh, like your life, eclectic and spans a lot of genres, feelings, textures. So enjoy. And thank you again for the conversation. Thank you so much, Achim. Thank you. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.